0: We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hello and welcome to the interruption, the Global Institute for Tomorrow podcast. We're sitting here in the Gift HQ in Sunny Hong Kong, and I'm with Gift founder Chandran Nair. Today's topic is still tracking COVID, but we're gonna be taking the discussion to a different route. We're gonna look at what the pandemic means for conservation in Asia. We've seen reports of clearer skies in China and Jakarta and animals supposedly wandering the empty streets. More importantly though, is that on February 24th, China banned its wildlife trading industry, valued at 74 billion US dollars and employing more than 14 million people. So Chandran, what is your take on the Chinese wildlife trading ban? Why did China do this, and how significant is this move?
1: Well, thank you. Um, yeah. So the the starting point for our little conversation today should be why did China do this? So to for the audience to understand that basically the COVID and many other actually uh, diseases into uh, pandemics, etc., uh, that human beings have endured over the over the centuries have essentially had their source in animals, uh, particularly wild animals, their consumption and interaction with human beings. So COVID particularly uh, has been identified as perhaps coming from two sources. One is the Malaysian pangolin, which is, I should say the Malayan pangolin, which is endemic to Southeast Asia. And the other is a, a species of bat. Which is found from Yunnan right through to through Southeast Asia as well. So that's the apparently the possible source uh, of the the virus. So China has taken the step uh, to to ban this. There has been pressure within China from Chinese organisations, some of which uh, I know, uh, conservation organisations, biodiversity organisations putting pressure on the Chinese government to essentially ban the consumption of uh, wildlife and the trading of wildlife, um, both the illegal and the legal. So China, I think, and rightly so, has now decided that they are going to outlaw all of this and take a very, very hard position on this. So, so So what do I think about this? I think this is one of the best pieces of news we've had within this uh, sort of um, uncertain times of the pandemic. So if there is a silver lining, uh, in my view, there is nothing better than this. Um, All this talk about uh, the pandemic provides us to look at uh, the way we work from home and all of those things, in my view, uh, 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 pale in comparison to what Um, this means in terms of conservation. So it's a huge uh, it's a huge decision but one that my contacts in China said was taken pretty easily by the top levels in China and I I think uh, in many other countries we might uh, say well you know will they really do this? Uh, I think if anyone knows what China is like these days uh, once they take these decisions in the interest of their citizens and in terms of the economic interest, they will do this. And I think some of the numbers suggest that in the space of the last two months, 20,000 of these um, wildlife trading farms, etc. have been closed. So that's, that's the reason they have done it. And the implications for the rest of the world are also important, and particularly the sources of this, particularly from Southeast Asia and elsewhere.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's actually a point that I'd like to go on to. I think first to say though, completely agree with your point about the transmission of viruses and, and diseases uh, from animals onto humans. The World Health Organization has pointed out that three out of four emerging diseases come from animals actually, right. so I can understand the mindset behind wanting to, to ban these these markets.
1: Well, influenza was for, uh, from birds to human beings. Mm. Uh, uh, we know HIV had some sources in uh, primates, uh, in, in monkeys, etc. So a lot of these things, and then we had uh, uh, the swine flu as well, which was animals, uh, and, and uh, a particular version of it uh, in Malaysia, in Southeast Asia, about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, which was bad to pigs, to human beings. Mm,
0: so it can jump multiple species, multiple right? Species. And with COVID in fact we've seen that even a tiger can get COVID. That, that's so right. it's just it's very cyclical. Um, but going back to your point about the implications for, for other countries, we know that over one thousand two hundred tons of exotic species products were seized in China in twenty nineteen alone. And a lot of this actually originated in Southeast Asia. Yeah. So what are the
1: implications of the Chinese ban on other countries across Asia? In my view, the implications are all good (laughs) because uh, Southeast Asia uh, is one of the principal sources of exotic species being uh, illegally caught and uh, disappeared across the world. I think the other thing we should not forget is people just focus on China. Mm. Uh, This is uh, again the sort of uh, obsession with China and therefore almost an unfair. Lot of wild uh, animals are traded and consumed in Southeast Asia some of them rooted in, uh, in tradition, uh, rooted in uh, the lifestyles uh, and uh, cultures of people uh, from the indigenous communities who lived off the forest. And as long as those people were smaller communities, Uh, They had no uh, contact with urban populations itself. Uh, Some of them perhaps had what is now commonly called herd immunity amongst themselves. But as soon as those natural barriers, distance, forests, etc. were removed, then they spread. So a couple of points here. The first one is that I think this is incredibly good news for the world. The implications can only be positive. China is not the only place that consumes it. A lot of uh, this is consumed in situ. Of course, in Africa, it's consumed. But coming back to Asia, I think this means that ASEAN now has to step up. And ASEAN uh, aspires to be a modern progressive society or however you want to define modern and progressive. But sadly, uh, too much of modern and progressive has been distilled down to more internet, uh, more social media and um, what's that other thing called? Uh, Industrial Revolution 4.0 was people start eating monkey brains and trading uh, pangolin shells to China or elsewhere I mean that is the definition of essentially not being progressive or not being modern. I'm not suggesting that uh, uh, not being modern needs to be something to do uh, is, the, is the same as being primitive or something like that. But certainly, as the population of Southeast Asia, of ASEAN, uh, reaches something which is, or is expected to reach a billion, we cannot we continue to turn a blind eye to the, the value of the biodiversity. And that's a whole topic which I won't go into the details, but people should understand that. We have plundered our biodiversity, and it's shameful and disgraceful. Now that we know that this is also the root cause of, um, of diseases with catastrophic, not just human impacts, but economic impacts, which in turn have human impacts, not in terms of deaths, but suffering and hardship, um, it's time to wake up. China has woken up. Uh, China will do uh, what they are good at, which is enforce uh, uh, draconianly the, the law. And I think this is a great opportunity for ASEAN to do the same, to protect uh, our diminished um, biodiversity, um, to preserve its richness, but to also protect its people. The question is, can ASEAN do it? China is one unified country. uh, It is a single-party state. uh, We know what its strengths are, what its weaknesses are. But in these sorts of things, they are swift. The question and challenge for ASEAN is uh, 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 a coalition of nations, uh, not a single currency, but an economic zone, different laws, etc., different stages of development, uh, you know, you have Singapore, you have Laos, um, how will they do this? But this is the challenge they must confront. And also because ASEAN, particularly, um, particularly Indonesia and Malaysia, with the island of Borneo, is one of the world's uh, richest biodiversity hotspots. We have a responsibility to protect it, and this should be the basis. How they do it, we will see. But one of the key things that ASEAN will need to confront when they do this is attack uh, the the corruption and the complicity of the institutions and officialdom in, in this trade. Uh, let's not be naive. This is this is the case. This is the case in China too. So when China now clamps down on this, they will be going hard after where it matters, which is the support of officialdom in this tra- in this trade. ASEAN will have to do the same in Canada. Uh, but if it does, then there are lots of benefits, which you know I'm happy to expand on if time permits. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think um, I think I'd like to speak a little bit about the the illicit wildlife trade because you mentioned that that was a a large part of of the the trade in Southeast Asia and it is significant there are some numbers that I have in front of me that say it's hundreds of tons of pangolin scales elephant tusks, rhino tusks, bear claws and teeth that are seized Every month throughout ASEAN. The the trade is ongoing. In fact, the illegal wildlife trade is the fourth largest trade, illegal trade in the world. Yes. Behind drugs, human trafficking, and and arms trafficking, right? So it's very significant. So, my next question then is how are we going to tackle that? How are we going to stop something that is as as deeply rooted as that, that it uses the same trade networks that the rest of the ASEAN economic community does use. Is it as simple as more law enforcement
1: and more public awareness? Well, on one level it is as simple as that, on the other level it requires a political commitment and this is where political commitment varies depending on the strength of the state. So when I think, when I say and I think most people understand when the Chinese government says they're going to do something then what you see is the the strength of the state. Um, the state will come uh, uh, come onto this like a ton of bricks. So for ASEAN, uh, as you pointed out, it's a complex web, but it's a complex web throughout the world. I mean, a lot of people don't know that a lot of uh, the stuff lands up in the United States, etc. Uh, Pythons and all sorts of things as
0: pets. The United States has more captive tigers than tigers remaining in the wild.
1: That's right. So this is a worldwide trade and there's also fauna. I mean people, uh, I I read something a few years ago that said one of the largest uh, markets for endangered Himalaya Himalayan uh, Fauna is actually the UK. You know all those people who love little gardens Mm. uh, They are the ones who are supporting and buy uh, exotic uh, flora uh, from the, the Himalayan uh, r- region. So this is a worldwide trade. So in ASEAN, firstly, I think there needs to be a region-wide uh, uh, agreement of zero tolerance. So once you agree to zero tolerance, then you start putting in place the essentially the laws supported with education. And there's no better time now than to essentially educate people because of the fear and understanding of what none of us who probably exist, uh, who, who, uh, who live today, have experienced before. Hardly anybody, right? So this is a time to tell them this is what is happening, and then uh, find the capacity and the resources to essentially start the enforcement. This will not happen overnight. It might take uh, a decade or so. But you have to have a vision that this is essentially be, uh, be stopped. Now, To do that, then you have to see what are the ramifications or what are the root causes of this. Uh, and the root causes of this is essentially um, links to other illegal activities. So one of the biggest illegal activities that leads to poaching and all of this is, of course, illegal forestry, right? The encroachment on the oldest rainforest in the world essentially then allows uh, essentially people to get into the forest, you know, these... Uh, 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 logging uh, tracks are opened up, people go in, etc., and that opens up essentially the forest to the trade. But the other thing is the essentially the, the, uh, the neglect of communities who live on the periphery of essentially the natural world which was essentially the dominant ecosystem in southeast asia if you go back 50 years the natural world occupied more than 75 percent of the landmass of southeast asia so all of these people have been uh, uh, neglected too and they were left to their own devices you know you either come to a large small town uh either you've got a farm the farming system was also rural agriculture was neglected so people couldn't sustain themselves. So two things happened, they either migrated and created the, the large mega cities, or they stayed there, and f- only you need only a small proportion of those people then to be used by those in this trade, essentially thugs, uh, but uh, well-organized thugs, to essentially pay them to go and catch pangolins, tigers, deer etc and export them. So one of the the strategies needs to be is to look at rural development from a very very different angle. Our governments in Southeast Asia have looked at this uh, not well enough in my view, Uh, looked at rural development more from a point of view of a quasi urban rural economy rather than a rural economy from the point of view of those who essentially and hundred, millions of whom live essentially on the fringes of the forest etc. How will their lifestyles be sustained and the last point I'd make is some of these people had essentially uh, a symbiotic relationship with, with the forests but those uh, symbiotic relationships were also then uh, torn apart as loggers came in industrial agriculture came in and then as the population grew the economic activity did not sustain their lives and then as this economic activity particularly the industrial far- industrial large scale farms etc came in it opened up the path for the illegal traders to essentially have the logistic supply systems to essentially extract, employ these people to work part time on the on the plantations, and the rest of the time catching animals, etc. I mean, pangolins is a good example because they mm. don't necessarily live deep in the jungle. But if you have an industrial, uh, large scale farm, or whether it be palm oil, bananas, or etc., they start to breed in there too, and then they are caught. So, so there's a real need to look at how the the agri the rural communities are managed but and uh, enf- there's no substitute for enforcement and a regional wide uh, crackdown. The last other point I'll make is, if we do this correctly in ASEAN, we also start to essentially start to build the semblance of a regional enforcement system around natural resources. That includes therefore a more coordinated approach managing the haze, the fires, etc., a lot of which has roots in illegal activity, etc., and therefore also have an impact. It also has an impact on then how we are able to manage the trafficking. Uh, and it also has a huge impact on the routes by which, uh, now I don't want to call it uh, human trafficking, but the, uh, the movement of illegal uh, abused migrants across borders also happen. So all of this uh, can be essentially, uh, has to be integrated in a most systemic view of how we manage the resources and people at a a regional level. Great, thank you
0: Chandran. I'm afraid that's actually all we have time for today, but this was a really interesting discussion. We started talking about uh, COVID and conservation, particularly based in China. But the, implica- the implications of that spread all the way to socio-economic rural development in Southeast Asia and region-wide law enforcement as well. So yeah. all these issues are interconnected. Thank you very much. We hope you all enjoyed listening to this podcast. And if you're interested in gift, you can find out more about us at wwwglobal instcom Good health to everyone tuning in. Thank you. Thank you. We
1: return you now to your regularly scheduled program. Delta.